two people who initiated my lifelong love of baseball back in 1983, Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony La Russa are now, 40 years later, the two most responsible for making me wonder of those four decades I spent rooting for, following, loving, and hating the Chicago White Sox weren't a complete and utter waste of time. Because I simply want no part of the Chicago White Sox, its team, organization, merchandise, memorabilia, anything. And it didn't take but a short time to completely ruin a lifetime of memories. Which is sad because those memories of the now ugliest sin team of 2023 began with the 1983 winning ugly White Sox when I was seven years old. A babysitter let me stay up until almost 10 o'clock watching the first Major League Baseball game I remember. It was an 11-0 runaway blowout of the California Angels, and Britt Burns, a pitcher whose name I'd never remember had he not played for the Sox, threw a one-hit shutout. The nicknames these guys had, Pudge, Wimpy, and The Bull, otherwise known as Carlton Fisk, Tom Pashorek, and Greg Luzinski, they crushed three Tommy John pitches into the Chicago night, back to back to back. The scoreboard exploded, fireworks shooting out of these psychedelic rainbow-colored lollipop cannons behind the bleachers. To seven-year-old me, it was simply awesome. It wasn't until I'd gone to Comiskey Park and seen what it looked like in the light of day that I realized how truly one-of-a-kind the stadium was. New York Times architectural critic Al Goldberger wrote that Comiskey was the rougher, tougher version of Chicago than Wrigley Field. Less pretty to look at, but much more convincingly, the real thing. To me, it had no mystique to speak of, with its double-decked army fatigue green stands, its old pillars and facades ugly to the core, kind of like that 1983 team. Who were these people with nicknames like Wimpy and Pudge? Guys who for the most part were has-beens or never-will-bees, having the summers of their career. Greg the Bull Luzinski, Larusa, his own manager, said Luzinski was perceived as washed up at age 32. He wasn't quite wrong. Luzinski lasted just one more year after 1983. But for that one last season in the sun, the burly, bearded, pot-bellied designated hitter with the huge eyeglasses hit 32 homers, the most he'd had in five years and received most valuable player votes. And Luzinski wasn't even the only guy in the starting lineup with huge glasses. There was also Rookie of the Year Ron Kittle, who in 1978 had been released by the Dodgers because in his two seasons in the minors, he'd posted a paltry 213 batting average. The reason? A neck injury so painful, he says it felt like his right arm was quote-unquote partially paralyzed. Test showed a pair of crushed vertebrae pinching a neck nerve. After undergoing spinal surgery, he wore a neck brace for four months. Five years later, appearing in the first and only All-Star game of his career at Comiskey Park, his American League teammates, some future Hall of Famers, said they'd never heard louder cheers for any player's pregame introduction. Then there were the two 26-year-old Laws, Vance, the bespectacled third baseman who somehow hit more triples, five, than home runs, four, and Rudy, 
a 26-year-old speedster whose 77 stolen bases would be more than he'd collect for the rest of his professional career, which ended before he turned 30. Pudge? Definitely not a spot-on description for a future Hall of Famer who has a 35-year-old catcher, a position that destroys the knees of mortal men, finished third in American League MVP voting. He wouldn't retire for another 10 years, and when he did, he'd caught more games than any MLB catcher, ever. And this amalgamation of personalities put together by owner Jerry Reinsdorf and his front office and guided to the playoffs by Hall of Fame manager Tony La Russa was a blast to root for. Now I've seen all the dog piles and post-clincher celebrations on the field one can see, but in September 83, I'd never witnessed anything like it, and it was pure magic. Pandemonium at Comiskey Park, announcer Don Drysdale said on Sports Vision as fans poured out of the stands en masse and onto the field in celebration. His colleague and future White Sox play-by-play announcer and general manager Ken Hawk Harrelson was with Fisk and Luzinski in the locker room as they dumped champagne on each other following an on-field report from Channel 7's Al Lerner and Jim Rose. The fans out there now enjoying first time in 24 years, the Sox on top. This is Jim Rose and Al Lerner on the field. Now, what is happening out here, Jim, is they are, they are holding on, they are holding on to the infield. The outfield is filled with fans. Both. How's it feel for you? Hey, they wrote us off early. We came back, buddy. <laughs> the old guys. The old, the old guys. guys. That's right. The guys the that were guys. finished. That's right. We're too old. We're done. We came uh, back. Well, you two guys been here, Bull. This has to be you loving Chicago like you do. This has to be your greatest thrill. Oh, no question about it. Uh, I've been there four times, but this, this is the one I'll remember. It's 24 years and being, being no, part no, of it. And after being written off, it makes yeah. it all that much better, believe me. Sweet. I got to see the kind of celebration my six-year-old son will never see. And when Carlton Fisk and Craig Luzinski are telling Ken Harrelson they're on Sports Vision, a reason I clamored for my parents to get cable, that they were written off, it wasn't the sort of us-versus-them nonsense we hear so often from dominant teams these days. It was for real. Heading into Memorial Day weekend, the White Sox record stood 16-24, and 24, seven games out of first place in the American League West. Two months later, they were 49-47. and 47. From there, they went on a tear, winning 50 of their final 66 games in a fashion that led then-Texas manager Doug Rader to tell reporters the Sox were, quote, winning ugly. Rather than bristle, the Sox Chicago embraced the moniker. That summer, WBBMFM Radio rewrote the lyrics to Na Na Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye and refashioned it as Winning Ugly, a precursor to the Bears' Super Bowl shuffle two years later. Those 1983 White Sox won ugly under Tony La Russa and Jerry Reinsdorf. In 2023, because of those two, the team is just ugly as sin. There's no other way to put it both on the field and off. On this episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, where we won't just stick to sports because we don't have the privilege of doing so, we'll look at how the White Sox became a complete and utter disaster under the not-so-watchful eyes of the same Reinsdorf and La Russa. We joke as sports fans that we essentially root for laundry. That's because we are. We know it's not logical at all, and in fact, it sounds downright laughable saying it out loud. However, there are, for better or worse, 
the memories and associations and the fun that floods your brain and your bones when you watch the team you root for play. These are my memories, the best ones. I care about and remember and hold with fondness and affection. And they're the reasons it's all the more painful, as we'll explore in the next episode, that divorcing myself from my White Sox fanhood has become such an agonizing ordeal. The signs were there early on that it should have taken a more critical and cynical eye toward my new favorite team. But I was seven. How was I to know this was just one of those times when every player on the roster has the season of their career at the same time? Britt Burns, who threw a one-hit shutout in the first game I ever watched, he was gone from baseball for good in 1986. A 26-year-old with a degenerative hip condition that ensured he'd never pitch in the majors again. American League Cy Young Award winner Lamar Hoyt, quote, it's been a dream, unquote, he said, after being presented with the award. Turned out it was one that couldn't last. Both LaRusa and fellow Sox pitcher Richard Dotson told the Chicago Tribune that Hoyt's stuff wasn't anything special. We had, quote, amazing command. Until he didn't, especially off the field. The following season, he lost a league-high 18 games, and the Sox traded him away. He had what the Tribune published as, quote, three drug-related incidents, unquote, in 1986, his final big league season. Dotson, for his part, might have been part of the inspiration for Nuke Lelouch, the pitcher in Bull Durham played by Tim Robbins, who had no idea where the ball was going when it left his hand. He couldn't find the plate, walking 106 batters in 240 innings in 1983. Yet he finished fourth in Cy Young voting. A year later, he walked 103. And then in 1985, at age 26, he underwent shoulder muscle surgery to relieve pressure on an artery in his elbow. He never regained his previous form. Meanwhile, as three quarters of the 1983 White Sox starting rotation shuffled out the door under near tragic circumstances, the White Sox replaced them with washed-up future Hall of Famers Steve Carlton and Tom Seaver. I loved seeing them in Sox uniforms because I knew who they'd been. However, I didn't realize they were no longer capable of being their past selves on the mound. Then again, I was still in elementary school. By the end of the 80s, the White Sox were at odds with Illinois politicians and threatening to move to St. Petersburg, Florida. The state legislature had, in 1988, approved a new stadium, but little progress was being made. But eventually the Sox got what they wanted, a new and rather charmless stadium on the south side to replace the old Comiskey Park I remember as being a sort of citified carnival grounds. By the time they moved in, the Sox were good again, having found future Hall of Famer Frank Thomas, nicknamed the Big Hurt, and a phenom of a pitcher in Black Jack McDowell. Told you the nicknames were good, Here's McDowell on the Queen's Sports Network back in 2017, explaining how he earned his moniker. Hawk Harrelson, who is like the nickname guru yeah. around the White Sox, just started calling me that, yeah. And I had no idea for the longest time that he was using that. Kirby Puckett walks by and he goes, hey, Blackjack, what's going on? And I was like, hey, Puck, how are you? And he walked away and I turned to, I think, Robin Ventura and I said, did, what did he just call me, Blackjack? What is that? And he said, I don't know, I think Hawk's calling you that or something. And so that's when I first learned of it. Hawk's story is that someone hit a home run off me, a rookie hit a home run off me in, in uh, Seattle. 
and was a little too pumped about it and took a little too long getting out of the box and running around the bases. And he said, I was staring him down like I was a gunfighter ready to ready to pull. He's like, he was just like a cowboy, Black Jack McDowell. In 1993, the two of them put together their best seasons respectively to date. McDowell won a league high 22 games, led the AL with four shutouts and took home the Cy Young Award. Thomas, at just 25, clobbered 41 homers and won the first of two consecutive league MVP trophies. And just as they had 10 years earlier, the 93 Sox clinched the division against Seattle at Comiskey Park. Amid the locker room celebration, Frank Thomas told Tom Bichurin, yes, the same wimpy from the 83 team, what it felt like for the Sox to clinch the division for the first time in a decade. There's no feeling like this. Look at this clubhouse. Uh, you know, it's been a long time coming. We've worked hard. This organization stuck with a lot of players. They've really put it together, and now this is the final piece of the puzzle, but we're not done yet. Two decades later, McDowell reflect back on that season in an interview on My Moment TV. That was the year that we finally overtook the Oakland A's and got to the playoffs, uh, got to win a division. That was what we had been working towards. You know, once we had this young team in 1990 and kind of crept at them, crept at them, crept at them. And once we kind of put it together and everyone settled into their places, we were able to compete with them. It was uh, an amazing little run and, and, and a great team we had back then. We ran into a buzzsaw in the playoffs, which happens. That team had serious World Series potential the following year, but failed labor negotiations followed by a player strike canceled the postseason and it would be another six seasons until the Sox reached the postseason once again. That team wasn't so exciting for what it did so much as what it represented. The White Sox, after being crushed by the strike in 94 and ensuing player lockout in 95, were relevant again. Plus, they'd found two new players who'd be the foundation of their franchise for years to come, Paul Canerco and Mark Burley. For the next four seasons, as the Sox did their usual one-step-forward, one-step-back routine, the Cubs took center stage. But after Bartman in 2003 and seven losses in the final nine games in 04, to unceremoniously bounce themselves from a spot in the playoffs, the city was looking for a respite. The Sox were more than happy to oblige and took the city by storm in 2005. Through the end of June, the team was 53-24. and 24. As for those foundational franchise pieces, Burley and Conerco, check this out. Burley was 10-1 and in 16 starts, had thrown three complete games, including a shutout, and pitched at least seven innings in 13 of those 16 outings. He was an absolute machine in the best way. Canerco, meanwhile, got on base, hit, hit for power, and got better as the season went on. He finished sixth in league MVP voting. But that's not why this team will stick with me, nor why I stayed up well past midnight to watch the longest game in World Series history. Nope. They gave me something to follow, to root for, and care about at a professional low point. I had been working as a deputy press secretary on a primary election campaign in New York City. We were going to be the upstart candidate who toppled the ineffectual incumbent, but it didn't happen for our candidate. We got drubbed. But as I churned out resumes and cover letters, I could root for the White Sox to do what I could not, rattle the cage of the entrenched establishment and it didn't take long for the Sox to do just that. The American League Divisional Series against the Boston Red Sox started out with a 14-2 White Sox butt-kicking for the ages. Chicago won Game 2 at home and then headed to Fenway. The White Sox took a 4-2 lead into the bottom of the sixth. Manny Ramirez made it 4-3 with a homer that sent pitcher Freddie Garcia to the showers. 
then the lead became dangerously precarious. Damaso Marte loaded the bases with nobody out. Manager Ozzie Guillen opted for Orlando Hernandez. El Duque, as he was known, had looked every bit his 39 years that season, and then some. It would be kind to say he struggled, muddling through to the point the proud Cuban great had been demoted from the starting rotation to the bullpen. And as he trotted out to the mound, I was thinking, uh-oh, this series could get ugly in a hurry. White Sox pitching coach Don Cooper described the scene in an interview with NBC Sports Chicago 15 years later. There's 45,000 people in the stands with tight Every fan got the tight Every coach, every player's got the tight The only that wasn't tight was El Duque's. Because think about this. He's pitching in the World Series. He's done now with the Yankees already. Done it with him. This guy swam from Cuba. That's pressure. That's real pressure. And if you get caught, you're killed. If you get caught, your family might be killed because you're trying to defect. If you go back and look at that video, by the way, there's not many strikes. The bases load nobody out. The pressure was on the hitters. And El Duque handled it very, very well. The most important inning in White Sox history? Fair to say? I think so. First, El Duque got Jason Veritek on a pop fly to Canerco. It then took him 10 pitches to retire Tony Graffinino on a pop-up to shortstop Juan Uribe. And finally, Johnny Damon went to a full count. On pitch number seven, Damon failed to check his swing on a curveball in the dirt. Strike three, inning over. There's now a statue of Orlando Hernandez outside Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago. I didn't know it in 2005, but I was watching the immortal moment Actually, it took 15 minutes. That would be carved forever in stone. On to the AL Championship Series where Guillen didn't even need to phone down to the bullpen. Just one Sox reliever even got into a single game of a five-game American League Championship Series romp over the Anaheim Angels. After a 3-2 loss in Game 1, the White Sox rotation of Mark Burley, John Garland, Freddy Garcia, and Jose Contreras threw four consecutive complete games. Let me repeat that, four consecutive complete games. The pitching clinic they put on was truly one of a kind. In separate interviews, Jermaine Dye on NBC Sports Chicago in 2020 and Mark Burley last year during an event at the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame said the feat would never happen again. In 2022, only two teams had more than four complete games in a single season, let alone a five-day span. The Sox rotation was all on and unhittable. And to try to put this in perspective, for Burley, the best of the four at the time, this was his only postseason complete game over the course of a 16-year career. Garland's complete game was the first playoff start of his career. And after 2005, he never played on a team that reached the playoffs again. Garcia threw one complete game, total, in eight professional seasons after 2005. And for Contreras, the 2005 season was the only one in which he started a playoff game. And over six more seasons, he'd throw just four more complete games. Yet these four threw complete games back to back to back to back over five days in October, after six going on seven months of regular and postseason baseball. Chuck Garfine of NBC Sports Chicago posed the question to Garland, whose complete game put the Sox up two games to one 
How could it be that everyone was firing on all cylinders at that point in the season? I was more worried about my body shutting down, thinking that it was the off season because I hadn't pitched for 10 days or something like that. And at that point in the season, if your body gets three, four, five days off, it thinks it's the off season. It's time to shut down. I have a few months off. Um, that's why sometimes the all-star break can shut guys down because your body just kind of shuts down. It takes a while to get back going. So that was my main concern was how's my body going to react there? And quite possibly that helped me out, you know, when you get in the game. If I'd pitched five days earlier, maybe I'd been too jacked up, been more wild and all over the place. The irony of this statement of Garland feeling so calm and settled is that those four pitchers were throwing two, using Garland's words, the most jacked up catcher in Major League Baseball during the early 2000s. A.J. Pierzynski entered the 2005 season on his third team in three seasons, despite having been an all-star catcher three years earlier. In July 2004, an anonymous San Francisco Giants teammate publicly referred to Pierzynski as a quote-unquote cancer. Multiple Giants players at the time told the Oakland Tribune they wouldn't mind seeing Pierzynski get traded. He wasn't, but in December 2004, the Giants, who'd given up three players in a trade for Pierzynski, simply released him, accepting the fact they'd received nothing in return. In 06, Pierzynski started a crosstown brawl by bowling over Chicago Cubs catcher Michael Barrett on a play at home plate. In 2012, the Men's Journal did an anonymous poll of 100 players in which they asked who the game's most hated player was. The only player to receive more than 10 votes? A.J. Pierzynski, who ran away from the field with 34. Yet nearly 10 years later, he's still celebrated in Chicago. Sure, he's an a but he's our he was also the one who may well have lit the match that ignited this incredible four-game run. As Mark Burley was getting set to possibly take the mound for the 10th inning of a 1-1 tie in Game 2, Pierzynski stepped to the plate with two outs and nobody on in the bottom of the ninth. On a 3-2 count, he swung and missed a low pitch that would have been ball four. Home plate umpire Doug Edding signals strike three. Angels catcher Josh Paul rolled the ball back to the mound and the Angels' defense started the routine post-inning walk off the field to the dugout. Pierzynski took a couple steps toward the Sox dugout before turning around and sprinting for first base. He was called safe, and as the Angels protested, Fox Sports analyst Tim McCarver, a former catcher who played 22 years in the majors, said, If Josh Paul made the catch, which he did, it's a strikeout. He added, the catcher knows if it's a short hop or if you catch it cleanly. Whether there's leather between the dirt and the ball, it's the third out. Except it wasn't, and Pierzynski was declared safe at first base. Thirteen years later, he described what happened in a talk moderated by Chicago Tribune sports writer Teddy Greenstein. When I was in San Francisco the year before, I was catching, and Bronson Arroyo was hitting. He's a pitcher. He struck out. It was a guy on second, no outs. He struck out on a ball in the dirt. And I didn't tag him because he went back to the dugout. Well, when he got back to the hitter, he threw the ball back to the pitcher. When he got back to the dugout, he ran out and went to first, and he was safe. And I'm like, wait, he been, and we all came out and argued, and he's, they're like, he went in the dugout, and, he, and they're like, no, it doesn't matter, and he's never called out. It had happened to me the year before. And then that play happened, and I swear it hit the dirt. I heard it hit, I heard two sounds, so I heard, which normally means it hit the dirt in the glove. And when I'm going back to the dugout, I saw that Josh Paul wasn't going to tag me. 
So if you watch, if you see the replay, you see me take a step and I'm looking, I'm actually looking at him. And I literally, in my mind, is like, as soon as he lets go of the ball, I'm going to first. Yep. And as soon as he, if you watch, as soon as he lets it go, I turn around and go. And the whole Angels team is off the field. Yep. But the umpire, I think he panicked. I don't know, I think he really knew what happened. So by then, and then it was too late. And he's like, well, he's on first. And he ran, he must not have hit the dirt because it was that close. And then he's like, oh, you're safe. And then, of course, Mike Sosha went crazy. They went crazy. But the, the, the thing is, Greg Walker always says, I'm the only one stupid enough that would have run. Because if I'm called out, I don't care. I just run off the field anyways. But he's like, you're the only one dumb enough that would have ran and didn't care about getting called out. It's one of the most memorable, if not the most memorable play in White Sox history. And one that might never have happened had MLB had instant replay at the time. Pablo Azuna pinch ran for Pierzynski, stole second base, and all hell broke loose in Chicago as he then came around to score on a Joe Creedy double to give the Sox a 2-1 to walk-off win and Mark Burley a complete game victory, the first of four in a row. The White Sox were heading to their first World Series in 46 years, with a chance to win it all for the first time in 88. The party would continue as the White Sox faced off against the Houston Astros. For me, it became a party atmosphere just to watch that World Series. The television broadcast would start with the familiar guitar chords of Sweet Home Chicago, and then the show began. The course of events as they had the previous two series made no sense. People least likely to become the heroes of the World Series were the ones who made the biggest plays. Up one game to none with the score tied at six in the bottom of the ninth inning of game two, Scott Podsednik stepped to the plate. The outfielder who hadn't hit a single home run in the regular season connected for a walk-off homer to put the Sox up two games to none. Two nights later, I got caught up watching what to that point was the longest postseason game in Major League history. As the clock hit 2 a.m. Eastern time, the ball game was tied at five and heading into the 14th inning. Jeff Blum, whom the White Sox had traded for in the middle of the season, stepped to the plate. This is how, 15 years later, in interviews with NBC Sports Chicago and baseball quoting, he described the experience of hitting an extra inning tie-breaking home run in what would be the only World Series at bat of his 14-year Major League career. I get lucky enough to square one up and hit it out, and I, I see the reaction on the bench initially, and I could watch that over and over on a loop because to a man, everybody leapt out of the dugout, and that's what I remember most about 2005. To this day, I do not remember touching first, second, or third. But it wasn't over yet. The White Sox needed to get three outs to secure the victory in the bottom of the 14th. In an interview with NBC Sports Chicago, John Garland, who started that game for the Sox and pitched the first seven innings, describes his experience watching the game go deep into the night. I was out of the game completely. I couldn't come back in no matter what. I had gone back inside. I'd done my usual cool-down routine that I do, my solar stuff, ice down, anything I had to do had myself a few dull beverages, was watching the game on TV, and I became a fan at that point. I was inside, uh, still finishing up my stuff, watched whatever the last four innings, whatever it was, and I became a fan at that point. I was just watching a really good baseball game on TV and enjoying myself and, and kind of lost in the moment. It wasn't supposed to happen this way, but after the Astros got two men on against Damasa Marte, manager Ozzie Guillen, Having run out of relievers and perhaps better or more thought-through options at 1 a.m. local time, called for Mark Burley, who'd thrown seven innings in Game 2, 
And regardless of who was telling the story, he was most definitely not expecting to pitch at that point in the game. NBC Sports Chicago's Chuck Garfine and Bill Melton pick up the story from there. The backstory to the save in the World Series was, well, Burley wasn't supposed to be pitching. He might have had a cocktail or two. He's enjoying himself. And then, oh, by the way, you're playing in the game and you get a save. Yeah, I had a little libation. And, you know, in Houston, it's really hot. Of course, the dome was probably close. It wasn't that hot. But Mark Burley, once again, here we go. All you got to do is ask him, you know, they probably said, do we really have to use Burley? This guy's a star. And he, they wanted to. They asked him. He said, absolutely. He came in and he got the out. What more can Mark Burley do? What exceptional things he did under the spotlight, under big games. Yeah, I think he actually, I've heard a couple of stories where he actually was going to Cooper during the game. Hey, right. I want to pitch, I want to pitch. And Cooper's like, get out of here. We're not, we don't need you. And then sure enough, they go into extra innings. They needed him and he gets a save in the World Series. The story of Mark Burley's one and only career save and his reaction after was why Chicago 670 The Score's afternoon co-host, Matt Spiegel, ranked him number one on his list of his top 30 Chicago baseball players he's seen in his 30 years covering baseball in Chicago. He was honest and said, yeah, I had a few beers in between the in innings and I don't think it was a big deal. Just enjoying a cocktail. <laughs> Got to save Hell the World yeah. Series after a couple of beers. Man, memorable moments, dude gets a 10. A save after a beer. It was these guys, these moments, and the end of an 88-year World Series drought that made this so special. In an interview on the Sox Degrees podcast last year with announcers Len Casper and Jason Benetti, Paul Canerico said he understands now the meaning of that World Series championship. If you would have known the impact you had on people while you were playing, you probably would have scripted way too tight and failed. Because, man, you, I had no idea that the reach of how that hit people, you know what I mean? To this day, you get people coming up to you like in tears and some, you know, that are like, hey, I want to thank you because they tell their story, you know? And it's like, uh, man, I, I'm glad I didn't know this was on the line here when I was <laughs> playing because I would have been ripping it too tight. But that's the thing. And that's what I mean, you know, I try to talk to some of these guys today about that is that, you know, it's like this matters to people big time. So, you know, go out there and, and get it done because you can, because you can get it done, you know? 18 years later, I can still recall the Wednesday night in October spent at the Hotel Edison Bar near New York City's Times Square watching game four. And just as the clock struck midnight, Houston's Orlando Palmero hit a chopper over the mound. Shortstop Juan Uribe cut it off and threw to Paul Canerico at first for the final out of the series. The Sox had won it for the first time in 88 years. And as the Sox fans at the bar whooped and hollered, I ducked out to call my best friend and most diehard White Sox fan I know. Holy Mike, they did it. The first two decades of some of the most fun and exciting baseball, indeed sporting events I've ever experienced. Like a roller coaster rock concert watching the White Sox. Amazing, a blast, and sadly, the pinnacle. Watching them hasn't been the same since. On the next episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, we'll fast forward to the 2020s version of the White Sox and look at how they've become an MLB soap opera, a rolling, catastrophic tire fire, how the two men who brought Chicago winning ugly back in 1983, Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony La Russa, have produced a sequel that nearly defies description, but is so bad and so outrageously ugly that it does in fact outweigh the fun, riotous, unbelievable, curse-filled memories I've just finished describing. 
Until then, I'm your host, Jake Williams, who also wrote, edited, and produced this episode. Make sure to follow this podcast and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.